Well, good morning. I'm not going to make you say it again because that's what everyone does, but I should. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for life. We thank you for the sun and the birds and uh, that there's goodness and that when we wake up, our heart can jump and that we can get excited that there's a reason uh, to continue on. And Father, I just pray that that would grow in us, that you would just help us become what you desire for us to be. And we pray just through the teaching time in this church that you would be able to speak to people, that you would remove the, the speaker and the words and the uh, every little thing that might distract, and you would just be able to talk to your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're in the book of James, so if you've got a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and start turning there. We're doing a series on James, and uh, my uh, realization last week, this is actually pretty common, um, things at Antioch change pretty quickly. Um, so if you like change, then this is a good place for you. But uh, I had kind of in my mind thought we were going to just take nine weeks or whatever with a couple weeks in between for something different for James, and that was just going to be what we were going to do, and then we move on to something else. And, and as I've been getting into it and reading through it and praying a lot, I, I just I can't, I don't feel like we can rush it. And so we might be in James longer than what we thought. And so if you like book studies, it's a good day for you. If you like topical studies, um, that's okay. We're going to be in James for a while. Uh, so James is in the New Testament. It's after the book of Hebrews. And this is the third part. And we're going to be in verses 13 through 15. Uh, and let me just read those to you. And then we're going to go back and pick up the context. But verse 13 in James chapter 1 says this. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, this is kind of a weird um, little paragraph, and you got, we've got to get the context if we're going to understand what this means. And so backtracking just a bit, the whole idea with James here, again, remember we came into it, and it's wisdom literature, and it's, it's talking as a pastor to people, and it starts out by saying, consider your trials pure joy, which is a paradox. How can you consider difficult situations and circumstances something to rejoice about? It just doesn't make sense. And he goes on and says that you rejoice in it because the whole goal is that you're going to mature and develop. And you cannot mature in a vacuum. You cannot develop or grow spiritually in a vacuum. And, and so as there's tests and as there's trials, you learn to persevere and you learn to endure and your faith is tested. And as you deal with it well, you grow. Your faith grows and you mature as a person. And this is an exciting process. And so as you respond to those tests and trials in a godly way, um, it went on and talked about asking God for wisdom on how to respond and what to do. Um, you respond in a humble way, 
and realize that it's not all about you and that God will lift you up if you're humble and you should take pride that, that maybe your life isn't perfect because there's good things that come from that, from, from difficult things. So you take pride in your low position. All of these things. So as you respond to the trial and you pursue wisdom and you pursue humility and you pray to God, um, this is a really cool thing. Okay, it's just a really cool thing, and it ends in verse 12 with this kind of capstone. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so this, this book, James, just starts with a bang. Consider your trials pure joy and overcome and endure and grow. And there's this wonderful opportunity that comes from the difficult situations. And you can look forward with hope to when it's all said and done, you're going to inherit the crown of life. And it's exciting. Okay, that's where most people want to camp. And then we get to our passage and what's James doing? James is very astutely saying there's another side to this. There's a distinct, different, and opposite side. When you're tested, when life is difficult, when you're when you're stressed, there's an opportunity for good, but there's also an opportunity for bad. Um, we usually react in a way that we would take back. Um, say things we don't want to say, do things we don't want to do. We usually do that when we're put to the test, right? When life is difficult, when it's hard. And so the testing that gives opportunity to rejoice and, and consider it joy because of all the good things that can happen, that same test also creates temptation to bitterness, frustration to curse God, to whine, um, to give up to lose faith, to strike back, to gossip, to take matters into your own hands. Whatever temptation you can come up with, those situations arise and they arise in a a very distinct and strong way when we're put to the test and when we're put under trial. And so James has, has painted this whole good side of it and now he talks about testing and he does it for a distinct reason. Look at the first side of this. When tempted, nobody should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, The first thing that's going on here is when you are put to the test and temptations arise for you to go in a direction you shouldn't go, don't blame God. You know, and and the supreme example of it is always Adam who, you know, the whole thing was, you know, Eve eats kind of the fruit, and I think he probably did too, and God comes up and, and says, what's going on? And, and you know what Adam does? With one sentence, he blames two people. The woman that you gave me, she did it. It's, everybody's to blame but me. And that's what we do, right? When we sin, when we do things that are wrong, We don't accept responsibility for our actions. There's always somebody responsible for circumstances that if those circumstances hadn't been there, I wouldn't have sinned. If there hadn't been a woman whatsoever, forget that I would have been really lonely. 
um, I still wouldn't have eaten that. And so, God, the circumstances that you created are why I sinned. You're directly responsible. And so, God allows tests and trials in our life. He allows it, and there's a good thing that can come from it. But when those things come, we can't immediately go and say, God allowed negative circumstances. And so whatever the results are, whatever the consequences of my actions and my response, God is to blame for it. We can't do that. God is not the one tempting us, and God is not the one responsible for our actions. And so... In 1 Corinthians 10.13, you can turn there if you're quick. Otherwise, um, you can just listen. But 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is what Paul has to say. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Trials are common to man. If you are alive, you are going to have trials. Guess what? Because trials are common to man, so is temptation. If you're alive, if you've got a pulse, you're going to be tempted. And that's a part of being human. But listen to what Paul says. He says, God is faithful. God's not the one doing it to you. God's not responsible for your temptations. God's the one on the other side. He's faithful. He's just. He's not going to allow it to go beyond what you can bear. You're responsible. You have choices. And when you're tempted, not only is God not the one tempting you, he's working to give you a way out. He's working to give you a way out. And so we understand, I think right away here, it's common to man. It's not God's fault. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, who is a contemporary of Jesus, a Jewish writer, said this, when the mind has sinned, And removed itself from virtue. It lays the blame on divine causes. When we go wrong, we tend to shake our fist at God. The Israelites in the desert, when they were led out, now they're in the desert, are a supreme example of this. They were tested, they were tempted, and then they blamed God. Proverbs 19.3 says this, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. It's not God who's responsible for our temptations and our reaction and our responses to that. It's we who are. But we're beginning to see something that's, that's at the core of man. We don't really accept responsibility. There's a temptation, one of these temptations is to lay the blame on God or to shake our fist at God. And it's not God who's doing it. And James just begins this little paragraph by setting it straight. Look, we're talking about tests and we're talking about trials and I'm talking about all the wonderful things that can happen because of it. And you can consider it pure joy, but don't for a second think that the bad things in your life, that your reactions and your responses to temptations, or even those evil desires in your heart, that that's God's fault. Just don't go there. And so then he continues on. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire 
he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's a fascinating question. Why can't we be good? Here's a a book by that title. Um, A philosopher who's down in San Francisco um, by the name of Jacob Needleman. It's a great, fun little book. Well, thick book. But listen to how he, he closes his introduction. This is what he says, what he writes. The question has taken many forms throughout the ages. But the words that cut through all the worlds and across all the epics of human history are simply these. Why do we not do what we know is good? And why do we hate? It is the question we never really ask. And it is the only one that can make a difference. For all the vast religious and ethical literature available to us today, for all the evidence of the futility of violence and hatred in our lives and in the world, for all our efforts to find the help we need, for all our yearning to be men and women capable of love, the question remains, why can't we be good? And so this is a little verse that I don't think would be on anyone's, this is my favorite verse in the Bible list, I I might be wrong, (laughs) but I don't, I've never heard this as somebody's favorite verse. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Why can't we be good Is 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 the question and the answer I think is pretty simple because we're not good. We're not, okay? The problem isn't out there. Why out there is all this violence and hatred and and bad stuff? The problem is this. I and we have a side to us that is prone to evil. It's prone to wander. It's prone to fall into temptation, and it resides within me. And so for all of our energy to try and create the perfect life, we want to manipulate the the situations and the circumstances and and bring about all this good in our life. We, We jump past the real issue, which is we have in us a weed that has a deep root. It's our own evil desire that gives birth to these temptations and these sins. And so there's two things I notice out of this. And so if you're, if you're writing things down, I think this is important. There's two things. And the first thing is this, uh, two ways that we fall into sin, I think, just as I've thought about life and, and read this passage, there's two ways we fall into sin. And the first one is this, we don't fight temptation. We don't fight temptation. We don't understand the complexity of the human heart. We don't draw a bead on it and get aggressive at fighting that weed in our heart. We don't sweat in our in our resistance of temptation in battling sin. We don't. And uh, there's different reasons for it. I think there was a whole generation of pastors that really took this serious. And so they would talk about fighting sin and and they would do it with this scowl on their face. And so then there arose this whole generation of pastors that were like, why do these other pastors always have a scowl on their face? 
And so they said, we don't want to be like that because Jesus was all about love. And so they, they don't scowl, they smile. And somehow they thought the talking about sin was the problem. And so they stopped talking about sin. And I think there's got to be a whole generation of pastors that comes back and, and they don't scowl at you. <laughs> it's common to all, right? You're, you're not the one person here today that's prone to temptation. Congratulations, we all are. Um, I think there needs to be a generation of pastors that can talk about sin and temptation and make it logical so that we can start fighting it again. Uh, The year 1985 was, in my life, the year of the great trampoline accident. Uh, And so that story is a quick one. It went jump, jump, jump as high as I could, and, and I landed on my head. And my my head buckled underneath, and they thought I'd broken my neck. And so my dad, later when he got back from work, we um, went all the way up to Bethesda Naval Hospital, and they were taking all these x-rays and doing all this stuff. And it tore a muscle, which was pretty brutal, and uh, different things like that. But it didn't break my neck. But it also pinched the nerves in this part of my, my head right here, the, the skin. just pinched the nerves so that there was no feeling. It was numb. Okay, and so the first doctor that saw me and the second doctor, they were really perplexed by it. So they would get a pin and they would like poke me there, and I didn't feel anything. Well, I filed that away, and I'm, I'm in junior high at the time, right? And so I was a big twerp uh, in junior high, most of high school, probably some of college. Um, but I kind of filed it away, and so when, you know, a month or so later, what I started doing, it took six months for the feeling in that part of my, my head to come back. Um, but I remembered that I couldn't feel and that they'd poked me with pins. And so uh, I still remember it's, it's English class especially is, is because there are some girls that really, you know, at junior high, you, it's the guy-girl thing goofing around. Um, but I would take those mechanical pencils with the little metal point, and I would just sit there and, you know, just, <laughs> just, just like crazy. And people would be freaking out, and, and I thought it was fun. And, but it was numb, you see. But just because it was numb didn't mean there weren't, there weren't consequences. So if you look at my head closely, that little area, there's all these weird little scars, okay? And uh, the point of it is I need help, I know. But uh, the point of the story is simply this. Our culture today is numb to sin. We don't talk about it. It's, it's, it's one of those weird things. We don't really want to talk about temptation. It's gooey and, and sticky and you're, you're, nobody wants you to do that. And so our culture is numb to talking about sin and temptation. And because we're numb, we think that we can just sin. We don't talk about it, so what's the big deal if we do it? And so we could do all these ridiculous things because no one's really calling us out on it anymore. And we just like bang on our head and we think that there's no consequences. But just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean there's no consequences to it. And so we need to start talking about it again. And we need to tell people that you have to battle this thing because it's in you. And you can't just lop off the head. The weed grows back. You have to fight it. You have to fight it. The Puritans knew this and they knew it well. And so listen, I have a friend that gave me a great book by John Owen. And, and those guys, it's like, you know, we don't even preach on a verse anymore that has to do with sin and temptation. These guys wrote whole books on it. 
I mean, they would write like whole libraries of books on sin and temptation because they realized it was a big deal. But just listen to some of these quotes from John Owen. This is actually from the introduction, but I liked it. It's, it's this, by making life easier for ourselves in minimizing the nature and seriousness of our sin, we become greater victims of it. Uh, Owen goes on to say this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's that whole weed thing again, right? And then here's the last one. When, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. And the idea is, Owen goes on to explain, sin's not going to let you alone. The evil desires that entice are always there. They're not going to let you alone. So you cannot let sin alone. You have to keep dealing with it. So it's kind of like this. If there was something over here that was trying to snare me and pull me to death, you know, like I, I'd want to move. I'd be stupid if I didn't, right? We all would. We don't walk right on the edge if we really think we're going to die or be pulled down, dragged down. And, and here's the thing. There's something in you that is trying to grab you and grow bigger and pull you down a road towards death. And so that thing in you needs to be dealt with the same way we would deal with something outside of us. It's a magnet kind of a thing, okay? It's not just the, I mean, it's not just the TV with the hamburger that's the problem. You know, it's Hollywood. They just didn't have, the, you know, the hamburger on TV. I'd be fine on my diet, you know. It's not Hollywood's fault. It's, it's like two magnets. And that's one of the magnets, but the other magnet's in you. And as with magnets, the closer they get together, the greater the attraction. Does that make sense? And so the TV is one and we're the other. And that's why I don't have a big screen TV. Because if I'm going to be tempted, I don't want it to be in high definition, you know. <laughs> I, I want it little cars, little hamburgers, fuzzy, low definition with snow on the screen, you know. That's my strategy for fighting sin. Um, if you've got a big screen TV, invite me over when it's football season because um, I need that. But it's two magnets. Second thing is this, two ways that we fall into sin. We don't take sin serious enough. We don't talk about it. We don't fight it. The second one is this, we don't focus on the good. We play defense. We don't play any offense. We don't see the goodness and provision of God, which is really the way out of this. It's the counterbalance. So if you turn back to James, let's look in verse 16. says this, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Okay, don't get this wrong. Don't get your, your, you know, don't let your head come off. Don't, you know, just don't be deceived. This is just clear. So, so take it that way. Just accept it. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Don't be deceived. Every good thing comes down from God. 
You've got a test. You need good to come out of it. It's not going to come from fighting back or slandering the person that's slandering you or going and hitting the bottle or running away or deciding that you just don't think God exists anymore. The good that you need is not going to come from that. It's going to come from God. And so G.K. Chesterton said this, There's many angles at which a man may fall, but only one angle on which he may stand. And we could compile a list of temptations, ways that we can fall, and, and it could be endless. But here's the thing, there's one way and only one way by which you're going to stand. And that's God. Okay, I can't say it any more plainly than this, and, and it's just simply this right here. We need to think less of ourselves and more of God. We need to think less of ourselves. We have got a disease in us. We're the ones that make mistakes. We're feeble. Even when we have the best intentions, we don't always follow through on them. We need to think less of ourselves and more of God. God is the answer to what we need. Whatever you're dealing with today, whatever you came in with, whatever is the secret in you that people don't know, the thing you're struggling with that you don't want to tell anyone because they'll think you're messy or they'll think you don't have it together or wow, he's, or he or she is such a great Christian, I can't believe it that they struggle with that. Whatever that is that you bring in with you today, the answer to that is God. Only He can give you the good that you need to deal with and manage and respond well to that trial in your life. And when you look to God, that's the, the growing and the building of your faith that James had talked about earlier. We need to make more of God and less of ourselves. Now here's two things that come from this whole idea of every good gift comes from above. First one is this. There's somewhere to look. You might not think there's anywhere to look. You've tried. You've been dealing with whatever you've been dealing with for years. Nobody can help. It never goes away. And you're just carrying that burden. Here's the good news. There's somewhere to look. There is a God who gives good gifts. You're not isolated. You're not alone. You're not in a vacuum in this universe. There's somewhere to look. Here's the second part of that. There's nowhere else to look. There's somewhere to look. Look to God. There's nowhere else to look. Circle this word right at the beginning of verse 17. Every Every, all, if it's good, it comes from God. If you're looking for good, it's going to come from God. It's all there and only there. There's somewhere to look. There's nowhere else to look. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So this brings up a real interesting point. Remember what I was saying is we don't focus on the good what we've tended to do is we only fight, if we fight, we, we only fight the battle of these behaviors that we don't like that get out of control. And so we try and box ourselves in with rules. 
It's called sin management, behavior management. I'm going to box myself in, put up all these boundaries, and that's going to do it. That's going to be my strategy for fighting sin and, some, and temptation. And anyone that's got kids knows that if you put them in time out, it doesn't necessarily change their heart. And the heart is the issue, isn't it? And so we get lulled into this idea of saying there's this bad, it's temptation, so I'm going to fight it. And we think that somehow less bad equals good. And less bad doesn't equal good, it just equals less bad. Does that make sense? There's got to be something over here that these desires that are strong and these needs and these wants and the feelings of helplessness, that there's something for those to latch onto and to focus on and to get excited about. And James is telling us, don't be deceived. There's this whole side to it. It's God. The answer is God. It all comes from him and it's good. And as you're fighting what's going on in you and this temptation that leads to sin, and it's going to drag you down to death, fight it, yes, but you've got to look over here and realize we have this good God and get excited about that. So here's the, the con- kind of the conclusion of that is, is simple. It's this. It's the best way to kill temptation is not to kill desire, but it's to, it's to overshadow the negative side. Okay, the best way to kill temptation is to overshadow it with good. The best way to kill temptation is not to kill desire, but to realize that what you really desire is God. Does that make sense? If there's something that's enticing here, if it's enticing, it's enticing for a reason, is it not? You're never going to be able to completely get rid of the enticement. What's the most logical thing to do? Put something over here that's more enticing. And then you don't care about that one. Doesn't that make sense? And so there's temptations over here and they pull at you and they're enticing. And they might have, a, they might have you right now. Like a hold of your leg, they're like hanging on and dragging you and pulling you. And what I think we've got to get here is that everything good comes from God. What you want, what you need, the life that is is the life God has for you, where you have peace and joy and love and patience and goodness and mercy and self-control, and you've got a good name which is is more desirable than gold, your reputation, your character, all those great things and joy, they're over here and they're marvelous and they're attractive and they come from God. And if we only play defense and we don't put this up over here and play some offense and focus on the good, we're fighting a losing battle. And it's not the way Jesus operated. He wanted to show us God because ultimately, when we see that, we don't want anything else. The medieval philosophers had a phrase, they called it the beatific vision. And the beatific vision was the blessed vision that you would have when you finally get to heaven and you see the beauty and the holiness and the splendor and the grandeur of God and everything else melts away. The beatific vision. And James is painting a little bit of that and saying, get lost in seeing God so that everything else, this is it. It, It's all here. 
Every good thing comes from here, and it doesn't change. It doesn't go up and down. If you catch God at 2 o'clock in the morning, he's not off duty or having a bad moment. Okay? He doesn't change. This is why I, uh, and I'm hoping some of you will, I hope, I'm hoping a lot of you will read through the book of James like every day. If not every day, once a week. Just read it as we're doing this series and let it become a part of you. It's amazing what that will do. And I'm also hoping that a bunch of you will read this book, Desiring God. And it gets easier as it goes if you kind of got bucked off like early on. Just keep going. And the whole idea here is this, that the command, delight yourself. It's in the Psalms, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. What we really desire is not sin. sin. Sin's like cotton candy. It just makes your stomach get all knotted up, you know? It's, it's a cheap fix. What we desire is God. That's what we really want. It's what we really hunger for. It's where our happiness is going to be found. And the more we think about that, and the more we realize that, we can get excited. Wow, if I pursue God, I'm going to find joy and happiness and fullness in that relationship. And it spurs us on. Remember we talked two weeks ago about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It says that, that Jesus Christ endured the cross because of the joy set before him. How do you do anything that's tough in life? You look beyond the tough part to the exciting part. I'm working in my yard. Um, this is drudgery. You either get excited about like, wow, it's going to look really good. Or like, okay, my wife will be happy. <laughs> you know. But there's some good on the opposite side of that, that that motivates you. And Jesus was motivated to die for our sins, not just because of us, certainly because of us but because of the joy that that would bring him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. And what we've got to realize is that God, when we pursue God and when we desire God, when we lock on to that and realize that's where our joy is, it's not to be found anywhere else. Every good and perfect gift is here. Then we're, gonna, we're just going to desire God. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I hope you read Piper's book, Desiring God, because I think you'll, it'll help you begin to see that relationship in a way you've never seen it before. So here's the conclusion. Everyone faces trials. If you're here this morning, you're facing a trial, or you've just come out of facing a trial, or you're about to walk out and face a new trial. And because of that, you're going to face temptation. Temptations come out of trial, and there's different temptations. There's, the trial is, a, in your life, maybe a person, and you want to hate or slander or get even with that person. Or you're coming in here, and your trial is stress. And so the temptation is to quit or escape or just to sin. You ever had that feeling? I just want to sin because I'm tired. It'll make me feel good. So your temptation might just be to sin because you're tired and it seems like it'll just give you a little bit of pleasure and you've been so devoid of pleasure for so long that you just don't care what God thinks, what other people think, what the consequences are. You're just tempted to sin because you're just so depleted. That's your trial. Or your trial is age. 
It's a new one that's starting to happen to me. Uh, Or health. And so you're tempted to despair. It goes so fast. What's left for me? What's next? Is there anything next? Does it ever get better? Um, Or you're tempted to be angry with God. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this health thing? If you really loved me, don't you know I could serve you if I had my health? Or your trial is just plain your life itself. And you're tempted to disillusionment and less faith. There really can't be a God. God wouldn't have made me this way. Um, Look at who I am. Look at the lot I've inherited. There's no good here. And there can be no good added. I'm just disillusioned. I'm shut down. And I'm going to lose faith. I can't endure. And so I don't know what it is this morning. But all of you have a trial. And there's temptations associated. And what you need to hear is, number one, it's not God's fault. God is trying to help you out of that temptation into a mature response that will lead to your joy and will bring him glory. That he'll be able to get excited and pleased with you, his son or his daughter. It's not God's fault. And that we do have strong desires in us and these desires make us want to sin in the face of our trials and they have to be dealt with. And instead of sinning, we rather we have to submit and we have to trust God and we need to work hard at that and we need to resist and fight and not be numb to sin and temptation. And lastly and most importantly, we need to delight ourselves in God. We need to revel in the goodness and faithfulness of a loving God. And we need to to balance out the negative with all the joy and goodness that's set before us. That in our trials and even in the face of temptation, we can possess joy no matter how weak we are. Because in Christ Jesus, and this was Paul's glory, remember he gloried in this. That when he was weak, then he was strong. Because he could lean on Christ and Jesus would be there for him. The Holy Spirit would strengthen him. And he was not alone. That God is working on his behalf and helping him no matter how weak he got. And even in his weakness, he found more strength than he found sometimes when he felt strong. And so he delighted in his weakness. When he was weak, he was strong. Let's pray. Father, I just, I don't even know what to pray in our generation, in today's day and age, and the things that we're dealing with, and the temptations, with all the visual things, and and the fast-paced life, and the stress, and the money, and having to provide for ourselves, and the competition that's out there. Uh, Father, it just seems relentless, So somehow you need to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and give us the strength to accept responsibility even in the face of our own trials and even when we're weak that we have to choose to follow you or to seek you or to pursue after you and not to give in to temptation. Father, make your presence near to us. Help us to feel it. Help us to sense it. Help us to to be encouraged and to be built up 
and able to withstand things because we know you're with us. And, and lastly, Father, this morning, may we see somehow something good today, whether it's a bird singing or the blue skies or the mountains or a, a person laughing, something good that we can trace back to you and help awaken us to this truth that James is talking about, that if it's good, it comes from you. Help us to see it, grab hold of it, to own it, to live it, and to be changed by it. In Christ's name, amen.